This episode is supported by Unisoft Law and Pulat Unisoft. We are all about special litigation projects. My files range from condo disputes to oppression remedies, but what they all have in common is very special clients. Ask around and you will find out why many lawyers refer civil and commercial litigation files to me. Find out more at lotio.ca. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unisoft Question. Today's guest is Catherine Marshall, who is an employment lawyer here in Toronto. Hello, Catherine. Hi. It's great to have you here on the show. I, uh, of course, looked at your LinkedIn profile. I always do. And um, I uh, looked under the section called languages and i noticed that you speak both english and french uh on a native or bilingual proficiency level is it well i assume it's true so please talk about i'm not surprised about english of <laughs> course but tell me about french what what happened there um you know what i i should probably update that because i i did go to a french first language school as a child but the French has definitely gotten very rusty over the years. So um, yeah, I, I was very proficient when I was younger. Actually, we used to have part-time jobs in my early 20s where I was doing tour guides at Rideau Hall, the governor general's house in Ottawa, and I would get them in French and English. And But uh, sometimes people try to hire me for French cases. Uh, I definitely don't feel comfortable practicing law in French. <laughs> All right, but you mentioned uh, Rideau Hall and giving uh, tours to people in Ottawa. Are you originally from Ottawa? No, I'm from London, Ontario. Um, and I always wanted, for me, like my big first passion was politics in life. And I was always yeah. like, oh, my God, I want to end up in Ottawa. I want to be near politics. I want to be near parliament. So when I was in university uh, in undergrad, I went to Western. I was always looking for jobs in Ottawa and uh, just to spend the summer months and one summer I got a job working um, at Rideau Hall when uh, Mikhail Jean was the governor general and yeah I, I did so many tours like it was just crazy the number of people who would go through the Rideau Hall and there, at that time in my life I knew Candace history very very well <laughs> um, yeah in your experience and in your opinion, what is the best, most interesting thing about Rideau Hall that no one knows about? There's this really cool tent room. They call it the tent room. And the entire ceiling, um, it looks like the inside of a, a circus tent. And it's very cool. It's, it's definitely a surprise. Like you wouldn't expect a room like that in Rideau Hall. Um, but they have a lot of like big receptions there and it's yeah very neat okay i gotta check it out i've never been to Rideau hall you i have go. been to ottawa <laughs> i have been to ottawa and it's not that i i look for excuses to go to ottawa ottawa is uh, yet to grow on me but there are so many amazing people in ottawa lawyers in particular i really want to hang out with them but um, you know, maybe a train ride will uh, convince me to to go to Ottawa. I really like taking trains. So, you said that you were interested in politics from the young age. Uh, I mean, what kind of kid is interested in politics? So, describe that kid to me. What happened? It's not normal, right? 
Um, my mom, uh, growing up, she was a city counselor for our local municipality, and she loved politics. She was very into the Liberal Party, um, and she used to bring my sisters and I to her council meetings and her different political events, um, and yeah, we'd be just coming in tow with her. So, like, I, I remember being, like, 10 years old, sitting in, like, city council chambers, um, coloring and and uh, I started thinking like this is kind of neat and I would start paying attention to what they were talking about so um, yeah I've been involved pretty much since I was a teenager um, I always was involved with the progressive conservatives uh, provincially and then the federal conservatives um, federally and I, I don't know if it's just because like my mom was a liberal I was like well I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna do what my mom's doing I'm gonna do something different <laughs> But I definitely got hooked to just the excitement and the adrenaline and um, yeah, that's so that was like my first my first love, I would say, is politics. Is politics, uh, Canadian politics to you, is it is it about fighting a fight or is it about achieving consensus or is it about something else? The, the thing I've always loved about politics is fighting for something that you believe in. Um, and I think that's why I love law as well. And I love litigation. Um, it's not fun if you're not trying to push for something that you believe strongly about. Um, so I've always been passionate about different issues that I've fought for in politics. But I think in Canadian politics, um, as much as it doesn't feel that way, there, there isn't as much like distinction between the parties as you see in the US and other countries. So the way to get things done, obviously, is to try to get consensus, consensus on some core issues. Um, but like, definitely for me, it's always just been about, about the fight. Like I love, like, God, I would love, I've worked on about 300 campaigns in my life. I love fighting nomination battles, like election campaigns, the, the, tighter the battle the more fun like the more underdog my candidate the more that excites me I just think I love that that um act of just fighting and winning um <laughs> so I would definitely say that I, I'm more of a fighter in politics than a consensus builder you know I uh, found your interview to an online publication called uh, pretty and smart company oh yeah and <laughs> It's uh, from a couple of years ago. I uh, read the uh, interview. It's really interesting. I, I liked it. The word fight, uh, various variants of the word fight appear in that interview four times. Three <laughs> of which were in your answer to the question, what is the single hardest and single most rewarding thing about being a lawyer? And uh, you actually uh, called fighting the hardest part. Yeah. The hardest, hardest thing is definitely fighting all day. 100%. And most days I am in a fighter mode. So that you call that the hardest part. But then the most rewarding part for you was helping your clients through a crisis and getting them to a good, uh, to a good place. So explain this contradiction. On one hand, you relish the fight on the other hand it's the hardest part so uh tell me more about that well i don't view it as a contradiction because for me the fighting is the means to the end right the end being the what i'm the 
results I achieve for my clients. And for me, um, especially with the type of work I do, my clients, um, uh, for them, you know, it's, it's not just about money. A lot of the times it's about justice. It's about vindication. It's about accountability or making a change for other people. Um, it's about getting their confidence back. And, you know, the fighting is what gets me there. And um, I think what I meant in that, that article, in that interview was, you know, most people hate conflict. I, I find actually a lot of lawyers don't like conflict. Um, people are naturally just not um, uh, wanting to be adversarial all the time. So in a job like this, where you're immersed in conflict all day, it can be very draining. Um, I do enjoy the, I do enjoy the conflict. I'm not going to lie. Um, what I mean by that is it doesn't bother me. Um, and like, for me, the harder the fight, the more rewarding it is. And, you know, my parents can definitely say like, even when I was a little kid, like nobody wanted to play Monopoly with me because, you know, I was just, you know, I, I would take every little battle and it just gets like really real very fast. Um, but I think what I meant by that is, you know, it is hard fighting all the time and you're always fighting the court system, you're fighting opposing counsel, you're fighting the laws. Um, uh, and that that can be very taxing for sure. But then, you know, seeing what happens at the end and the, that end result is for me the best part of the job. You know, I personally don't like fighting that I cannot bill anyone for. That's the only kind of fighting that I don't like. So in my regular life, I don't really like fighting because who am I going to send the invoice? But uh, jokes aside, uh, knowing uh, what you just said about uh, the costs of the daily fight, I, I, I hear you and I feel those costs. What is your uh, method for dealing with this cost? What is your method for um, uh, uh, mitigating the harmful effects of, of, the, of the fight, of the daily fight in this profession? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Like, I don't have the perfect answer. I've tried different things over the years. Like, the biggest thing for me that I've learned is that I need the, the, I need the decompression time. So I don't have work email on my phone. That's one thing. A lot of lawyers are very shocked when I tell them this. They're like, oh my God, how do you run a litigation practice with all these like big media clients and stuff happening and you don't have your work email on your phone? And I just say, well, the reality is most emails can wait a little bit. And um, I found when I had, when I was con connected all the time, I was just getting very burnt out um you know you're always on right like you know when you're in that fighter warrior mode your your adrenaline is moving your nervous system is an overload and you can't be i for me at least i couldn't be in that state 24 7 that's not healthy for me so i need to have those periods like on the weekend or in the morning when i'm having my coffee and i'm reading the paper where i haven't turned on fighter catherine yet you know, fighter Catherine, when she comes to her office and I'm in front of my computer or I'm in court, then it's just like that, that, you know, um, switch flips and I bring it. But in order for me to have that burst of energy and focus and fight, I need to have the complete downtime. So separating my work from my personal life was huge for me. And then I just big on 
like self-care I do you know I like to book spas and just I have ho I have hobbies I think hobbies are really important things that you gain pleasure from that are not something that you're paid to do um so I but I would say the email thing is the biggest thing and something I, I talk about a lot because I tell I think burnout is not necessary you can there's ways you can manage your life and I always tell lawyers like I know we're important but like let's put our egos aside we're not open heart surgeons nobody's no one's going to die <laughs> if you don't respond to the email right away they're not so um yeah you know I really share your interest in spas and <laughs> I, uh, I think that spas are are so underrated among men they for some reason uh, have the reputation of the wellness um, place for women but i believe that they're excellent for men uh, at least those who come from uh, the russian uh, culture or from the scandinavian culture understand the uh, benefits of of steam and heat and hot water and i think more men, more litig more male litigators should look into that because it's really a, has a powerful effect on on stress. But uh, that's something that we have in common. What we don't have in common is that your readiness to represent the underprivileged high profile case. I don't have that, and I really admire that when lawyers are prepared to do it because. My preference is to represent very privileged in a low profile case. This is my preference. So uh, please talk about that, how you uh, landed so, so many high profile uh, cases at a relatively uh, early stage of your career, especially for the underprivileged. Yeah, um, you know, it like definitely wasn't something that I woke up one day and was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. It just kind of happened organically, but like definitely... For me, I my favorite kind of case, I know exactly what it is. And when I see it across my desk, I'm like, I need this. I like, I love a case where it's a big challenge. So like usually there's an underdog, the underdog being my client. Um, and uh, it's gonna be a fight. You know, there's, there's a lot at stake. Um, and the case has some meaning. It has, it, it's not just about money. It might impact other people's lives. Um, or make a change in the law. And I love those types of cases and I'm willing to take them uh, often on spec. Um, so, you know, I'm willing to take them on pure contingency and I'm willing to put myself out there as the front end of the case um, and take all the blows because uh, when you're sometimes out there fighting on these cases, you become the target of the hate. You know, like I have, there are lots of people who've, um, you know, they, to get at my client, they're going to, they get up, they try to get at me. So you got to be willing to do that. But once I started taking on cases like that, they just lead to more cases because clients like that, who are looking for a fighter, <clears throat> if they see a lawyer out there fighting for someone else, they think, oh, well, I'm going to call that person. So that's how it happened. And, you know, I don't have capacity to take on like a hundred of these cases a year, I do try to take on a few every year and, and they bring me a lot of gratification and they're just really fun. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, I uh, want to go back to your pretty and smart interview. I really like the name of the publication. I wish I were pretty smart. <laughs> but uh, the question... Yeah, I, the... I actually not, I don't love the name of that publication, but there it was like a few it. friends who had, uh, who ran it. And, uh, but yeah. <laughs> I, I'm definitely not pretty. And some people think that I'm not so smart, but uh, you know, I think that um, I'm yet to reveal my intelligence to, to some uh, people that I deal with. So anyway, the question that uh, attracted my attention and your answer was uh, your biggest role model. And they asked you about your biggest role model. And uh, your answer was Marie Hannon. I know Marie Hannon. I interviewed Marie Hannon on the show. And I'm really curious what uh, qualities in Marie Hannon you want to emulate what about what what is it about her that makes her a role model for you why she is your role model yeah when i think of role models in law i always think of her because she she's a fighter i've always loved that she she is a really tough fighter and she um doesn't seem to give a crap about what people think about her um and i love that she's very unapologetic and she'll take on cases again, she'll take on, you know, she'll take on those underdog cases or those cases where society seems to be totally against her client or against her. And she'll go out there and she'll do her work and she'll be amazing at it. And um, I really admire that about her. Um, uh, and uh, of course I love, I, I love fashion. So I love that she has this flair for style too. And there's often been, this I think societal expectation on female lawyers that okay we have to be super masculine because this is a masculine industry and if you're going to be a tough litigator you can't have pretty nails or crazy hair or wear designer couture um I love that she again because she doesn't care what people think about her she's like hey clothes bring me joy I'm gonna wear what I want I'm the same way like I uh you know I'll wear like pink stilettos to court because it makes me happy. It brings me joy. And um, I love kind of that feminine side of my personality because I do have a very masculine role. Uh, but I, I, I just love how badass she is. I have her book in my office. Uh, I had her sign in. I went to one of her book uh, launches. And um, yeah, she, I've, I've ended up having a few cases against her firm, of course, because I act for a lot of sexual assault survivors um so i've battled it out with her firm before and uh, lots of great lawyers there yeah quite a few of them were guests of the show including one of my favorite interviews daniel robitai so you talked about wearing pink stilettos to court and you talked about your feminine side and of course when you say things like that about yourself you're not really addressing women you are addressing men women don't need you to explain to them your uh interest or preference in uh wearing the pink stilettos or or being a woman we women already understand that so to me you're trying to explain something to men uh, because men they don't get it they don't understand something about women so do you think it's a fair uh, 
way for me to look at it do you are you addressing men are you trying to send a message to the male part of this profession and if you if you're trying to send a message to the man in law what other things do you want to tell them besides uh, the fact that women should be allowed to wear pink stilettos because women want it right Bes uh, which is to me it's obvious but besides that fact what other things do you think women should educate men about in this profession i mean look uh when i talk about my like my love of fashion that's not directed at any gender that's just me talking about something that i personally love i know lots of men who love fashion too i, I work with one of them howard levitt uh he wears more designer <laughs> than anyone i know um but it's just something that brings me joy but look um Law is a very uh, male-dominated, misogynistic profession. I don't know one single female lawyer that doesn't have just a long line of stories uh, of misogyny or sexism that she faced in the profession. Um, you know, pr prior practice, you can go look at any big firm and take a look at who is in the equity partnership, and it's going to be sometimes 80, 90 percent male. Um, and... Uh, it's just simply a fact. It's not my opinion. It's just facts. Um, I think that um, uh, there was a time in my career where I I cared what I cared what other lawyers thought of me. I don't I don't care about that anymore. <laughs> um, you know, I've had lots of like old male lawyers over the years say very sexist, offensive things to me, and I I've always um, hit back. I just find it amusing now. Um, but I, you know, I think that what I would say to men in the profession is, um, you know, be a, be a true ally to women. And the way to do that is to um, not expect them to be just like men. Everyone's got their own, everyone's got their own skill, their own flair, their own talent. Um, I used to get a lot of criticism early in my career from always men for you know being too aggressive um I think that there still is this expectation that exists for a lot of women in law that we still have to be appeasing we still have to be a certain way um you know women are socialized from childhood to be a certain way to be nice and no one ever questions a male litigator if he's really hardcore and aggressive. That's the job. That's a good thing. But for women, we get a lot of criticism for it. So I think that, you know, understanding and acknowledging that would be one thing to to keep in mind. But, I, you know, it's, it's there. I see it all the time. And I have plenty of lawyer clients. Um, I act for a lot of female lawyers. The firms don't often know I'm there in the background. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've seen a lot of horrible stuff. Um, so changes still need to be made. Well, we can also uh, probably uh, agree that women are different. There are different women out there. There are women who are naturally nice. There are women who are naturally soft. And my question to you is if that's also potentially a secret weapon that women litigators can have, because um, your approach 
perhaps is one of the approaches unless you think it's the only one so this is what i wanted to ask you about do you think it's your personality that makes you naturally good at fighting and predisposed to fighting or do you think this is really the best way to litigate and other ways are inferior what do you think about that I think every lawyer has a different style. I think law, like one of the things with law is that it's very subjective. Um, every lawyer does things a bit differently. I don't think my way is the only way or the best way. It's just the way that works for me. Um, and it's always been effective for me, but it's my personality. Like I, I think where when I started to be very successful in my job, it's when I really um, decided to be authentic to who I am. Um, you know, I go out there and I say stuff. I'm on Twitter. I'm saying, you know, I'm very opinionated. I am not afraid to talk to the media. I don't like, a, there seems to be a lot of lawyers who are like, oh, don't talk to the press on your cases. Or if you do just be very, you know, say one or two things like, no, nope, I'm out there. And I just, I just rip right into it. I, I don't really follow these rules that seem to exist. And what I would say to any lawyer, whether you're a male or female, is just, um, you know, practice in the way that you feel is the most authentic to who you are. I know lots of great litigators who are, um, you know, not aggressive. My dad was one of them. He's a judge now, but he was a family litigator and he is not an aggressive personality, but he was very strategic in how he did things. He did it his own way. So, um, but I, I, definitely think uh, that um, women are uh, socialized to be nice and socialized to be appeasing. And that translates into law. And I've, I've been on many cases, actually recently, where, um, you know, I'm in court, and there's like this male senior partner on the other side, and we've been battling it out, you know, this whole case. And I finally meet for the first time his female associate who's been clearly doing all the work. He doesn't let her even say one word in court, but brings her to every hearing date and doesn't even introduce her. You know, men in law need to stop doing that. That happens all the time. You know, if you're, if you want to be a true ally, let, let the women shine, open that door for them, help them. Don't, don't push them to the back. You used the word ally several times today. Uh, that word comes from um, military lingo. Uh, do you think men and women have been or are at war? No. <laughs> that's 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 a good answer. Let's move on. <laughs> I don't think that they're at war. No. Let's move on. But I think so, there are many issues that. Uh, are, are pervasive in society that are gendered and that um, uh, apply to women. And those are the issues I've always yeah. fought for in my career, like sexual violence, domestic violence, uh, misogyny. Um, uh, there is femicide that is happening in this country. We have an epidemic of women being murdered um, in, in domestic situations. We have a law, a legal system that doesn't take those types of crimes seriously. Um, you know, if you look at like how many missing missing and, and murdered indigenous women and girls uh, there, there are in Canada, 
um, that is just, that is sexism and that's also racism. But um, in that sense, I think that the men who have run politics in this country for many years have not um, paid enough attention to these issues. So hopefully as more women become leaders in this country, we can see changes. You know, you talked about um, media um, communication for lawyers and in law practice. This is an interesting topic. It's really, I think, an undercover topic in law practice, uh, perhaps because most lawyers don't have the high profile, uh, don't do the high profile work that you do. And uh, you you mentioned uh, talking to the media, but about your cases, but besides talking to the media, you actually did quite a bit of writing in the media. You mm -hmm. wrote quite a few opinion pieces for a National Post over the course of, I would say, a couple of years, if I'm not mistaken. How did you get into that? Yeah, so I've always... I've uh, been interested in writing. I started writing um, when I was in law school. I was I would write pieces for my law school newspaper. I um, then uh, started writing. I was practicing law in Vancouver as an articling student, and I started writing for just one of our local like daily newspapers. And that just translated into you know the the thing is like the more you write and the more media you do the more comfortable you get and the more opportunities come your way so um, that was always just me pitching ideas and wanting to have a voice and you know wanting to speak about things that I cared about and I think probably that experience has helped me uh, you know not be intimidated by the media I think where a lot of lawyers. Um, uh, get nervous talking to the media is of course you you're always very scared that you're going to say something wrong or put your foot in your mouth or perhaps say something defamatory or that could get your client in trouble and you know once you've done a, a bit of media those anxieties go away a little bit but for me what I've learned with the media is that you, we cannot rely anymore on the court system to get justice it is dysfunctional it is actually totally broken you know, court dates, you're never going to get them. It's years. Uh, there was a case the other day I saw in the press about a rapist getting uh, off because there was too many delays in, in the court system. So there, there has to be other ways to get justice for clients. And one of the ways I've discovered is to bring cases into the public sphere. And uh, that is really by necessity, because if you just rely on our court system, in many cases, you're not going to get anywhere and you're going to just get your client um, a giant bill for no result. So um, I I use media strategically. Um, I only go to the media probably in a small percentage of my cases. Most of my cases you'll never hear about. Uh, but um, I use it very strategically. Um, and it's always something that the client is very much pushing and comfortable with. I never want to put a case out there if the client is not prepared to be, you know, public and front and center as well. This is um, something that is probably related to your political views. And the interesting thing is if anybody, if anybody uh, has listened to you so far, they would peg you as a left winger because 
a lot of the things that you say, I think that they are commonly associated with the left wing of the political spectrum. But um, you're, you're anything but, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not really sure what you, look, I think that there's like this view that women's issues and um, social justice belong to the left spectrum. I think that's probably what you're getting at. I've never subscribed to that. I've always been someone who just, I, if I believe in something, that's just my belief. I don't really put myself in a certain, I'm not like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be left wing on all issues or right wing on all issues. There's lots of issues where I don't agree with the conservative party or you know, the right about. There's lots of issues where I'm probably more leaning to the left, but I also, I'm someone who cares about human rights, but I also care about the freedom to choose. I also care about low taxes. I care about, you know, not having my kids funding um, the debts of my generation. So I'm probably a little bit all over the place, to be honest with you. <laughs> but yes, it surprises many people when they find out I am conservative politically. <laughs> right. So do you think there is something wrong with our political system? Because our political system uh, has two square pegs and you you must fit into either one or the other and if you don't you're out of luck and then we call ourselves a democracy because uh, we offer the population some semblance of a process but mm -hmm. are the outcomes really democratic and maybe i don't know we're getting off the the legal topics at this point and getting into the political science topics but I have a suspicion that you're qualified to talk about. I'm like, look, I think a lot of, there's so much overlap in law and politics, which is why you see so many lawyers running for office. There, There's a huge overlap. Um, but um, look, there's no perfect political system. Um, we have a, a first past the post democracy system. And uh actually i've seen i've seen studies um over the years most people don't identify as left or right and most canadians actually vote very differently each election most most people um are all over the place and if you only go on twitter you would think that like we have a society where everyone is just at odds with each other and everyone has really firmly planted beliefs, but it's, it's a very small percentage of people who are out there screaming their views on the internet. Um, but uh, I think in Canada, um, the, the media is part of the reason why um, there is this feeling that every everything is really at odds. Um, I've worked on campaigns where um, I worked on the federal uh, conservative campaign in 2019. My husband was running the election for the conservative leader. Um, and so I was very involved in that, that campaign. And I saw behind the scenes how everything was playing out. And I was, you know, I was there when like the blackface uh, bomb dropped. And I remember at the beginning of the campaign, the media, all, you know, CBC, CTV, all of them said, oh, this is going to be an election about issues. We're going to talk about healthcare. We're going to talk about the economy and housing. 
And what had, what happened during that campaign, literally every single day, um, the media was focused on what, you know, 10 year old tweet, uh, a political party, you know, dug up from an, from a campaign, another candidate um, to embarrass them or, you know, these like trivial issues that didn't really matter, but it was very clickbaity and the important issues don't end up getting properly addressed in campaigns. Um, just they're not sexy. They're not they're not fun to write about, I guess. They don't get enough clicks. So I think the media, we, we have, you know, they, they are partly to blame for the fact that we just seem to be at odds on these little issues, but the big ones are not being addressed. So I, now I have a question about the effect of your style, the effect of your media presence, the effect of your, let's call it content, um, uh, policy on your on your uh, files on your practice mm -hmm. is it fair to say that it generates work for you is we're all interested in how lawyers get work we're all interested in how lawyers get clients do you get clients do you bring clients to your firm does your firm give you all the work how does that work tell us more about it yeah i mean uh most of my work it comes by way of direct referrals to me. Um, and it's really, uh, I think the result of, of my profile. So when I'm out there fighting on big cases. And so when you're out there, people hear about you and they, they send work your way. Um, so uh, that is how I, I've gotten work um, the past few years. Um, employment law, you, you know, you're always going to just have this never ending cycle of like referrals because everybody has problems with their job, no matter what, everybody's got an issue with their boss or their job. And so you're always going to have that, that, that cycle of referrals. But um, I've really become like, and this is my brand and this is very true to who I am, but I become that, that lawyer that if you want to, if you want to fight, if you want to hire a lawyer to just go to war for you, um, you hire me. If you want to hire a lawyer who's going to quietly, you know, write a few letters back and forth and get you like a reasonable settlement and, and, and just make it all go away. Don't hire me. I, I, I'm not the lawyer for you. There's lots of lawyers who will do that, but um, I, I'm that lawyer if you want to go for, for a fight. Um, but at the same time, I've got to balance my practice. Like I can't have every single case in this crazy heated litigation. So I do offset um, my big litigation files that are in the, the public sphere and in, in the media. So they're high stress with um, more, I would say, like run of the mill employment cases uh, where they're still important. I'm still fighting really hard, but they mostly settle. So, um, yeah, it's just it's all been basically my own marketing efforts. So I will I always tell lawyers like it's. It's not hard to market yourself. You just got to be willing to put yourself out there. I agree with that. You know, I, I want to go back to fighting. For some reason, I keep thinking about fighting uh, when <laughs> I talk to you. And, <laughs> you can't even see my, like, my boxing gloves in the back. Oh, wow. Maybe we should. <laughs> you know, um, when I think about fighting in litigation, um, I think of two things. I think of two 
only two venues where we can fight. There are only two rings. There are only two octagons. There are only two events. It's motions and trials, right? Uh, everything else is not really a fight. Everything else uh, is not a zero-sum game. I mean, motions and trials are a zero-sum game. And to me, a fight is always a zero-sum ga game. And everything else has to be a negotiation or consensus building or some sort of variant of that so having heard what you said about the courts being broken and knowing mm -hmm. it myself firsthand is it really worth fighting in the vast majority of cases when the octagon is closed and you can't get in there maybe you will in a couple years for a motion and for a trial i don't even know when right so is it even worth fighting in the majority of cases and if you if it is then explain how you do it when for most of us the octagon is is locked and not available yeah i mean i i mean that's why i said earlier i i i choose in many cases to take the fight outside of the octagon right mm -hmm. so so um i i primarily act for plaintiffs that I like to act for plaintiffs. That's most of my practice. Um, big companies would love nothing more than to only have the fight happen in the octagon because they know a few things. Number one, they know that most plaintiffs cannot afford to fight there. It's extremely expensive. Number two, they know that you're you're unlikely to even get there. And if you do, it'll be many years from now. And number three, they know that no one's really going to go to court and watch what's happening and write about it. So it can, even though it's an open court system, it's not going to get out there. So I bypass, I mean, don't get me wrong, I file litigation, and I go to court all the time, but I, I also fight in another realm, which is uh, you know, the public sphere. When I talk about that, like, I mean, a lot, of, for example, I have a lot of cases where we're fighting the government or we are fighting major corporations or we're fighting publicly funded universities. Um, uh, these are entities that um, there's a big public interest in them and they have a public mandate. And, you know, I fight with everything I do, every email, every letter I write, every tweet I craft, every press conference I have, because it's what it's that that constant pummeling, that relentless, never stopping train that just keeps <laughs> plowing towards you, that does make a lot of defendants eventually give up because there's only so much of that that they can handle. And it's just a fact. And I, I call it the quicksand effect. So um, there's really, there's no winning. When, when you're a defendant and you're being publicly uh, shamed and sued and you've got like a bunch of people on Twitter tweeting at you and you've got people signing petitions for you to do something and there's this huge public lens on, on your misconduct and your wrongdoing that is very stressful and that has nothing to do with with the court that has nothing to do with the courtroom and um so i'm always in advocacy mode always and that's not to say that i don't you know 
try and cooperate sometimes. I mean, I have to now and then, but I'm always in that advocacy mode, always. Well, I'm Catherine, probably, I'm sure most opposing counsel would describe me as a pain in the ass. <laughs> well, I haven't felt that during this interview. Uh, and I want to thank you. I want to thank you for sharing your insights. I want to thank you for sharing your experience. I, I loved hearing uh, from you. I loved hearing about your style. I loved hearing about your approach. I wish people listened to uh, opposing sides more and uh, learn more about opposing sides. And uh, I think learning more about your style definitely opened my eyes. And uh, I think our audience also uh, enjoyed okay. this this conversation and well, hearing from you very for, much. Thank you for having me on. I don't know if we'll ever be in a file where we can fight. I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't do much in the commercial litigation bar. We should just day. try. We should just make up a file we just so we can, totally the two of us it. can fight it out. <laughs> I will say this, you know, I'll fight very, very hard, but I will always have a drink with the opposing side later. Like to me, it's never personal. Uh, unfortunately, I think for some lawyers, it does get personal, but I'm always, for me, it's a job. And I, I respect a fellow fighter. If I see that someone fighting hard for their client too, I respect that. So I always love to grab beers with opposing counsel. If they'll have me, sometimes they won't. Sometimes they're too upset. Well, uh, well Catherine, the good news is we don't have to fight to grab a drink. I'm always yeah, open exactly. to that. Thank Sorry. you very much. Thank you.